Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Remote Real Estate Investor. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about calculating ROI, which is fun because there's a lot of different numbers within real estate. We're going to be talking about what are some of the assumptions that goes into some of the various return metrics and how we keep track of those metrics. All right, let's do it. Go ahead and I'm going to put Emil on the hot seat first. So Emil, so based on this episode, number one question, what do you think is the most important metric to look at when you're evaluating a rental property? Yeah, my favorite metric, the metric that matters to me the most is cash on cash. I think that's kind of the easiest way to... <laughs> I shouldn't have let you go first because I was going to pick that one too, but I'll, I'll pick another me one. Me too. Sorry. <laughs> go ahead, Emil. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I think to most investors, cash on cash is super important because it allows you to really, really easily compare it to another investment, right? If, if people are putting money in the stock market and we say you average 8% a year, 7% a year, whatever it is, right? That, that, the easiest measurement with real estate investing is your cash on cash. So that's the metric that I care about the most when I'm looking at properties. Nice. Um, what metric do you care about the least? Or is there one that you, you don't care about? Oh man, I think like the one I pay attention to the least that, you know, you'll see floating around in, in real estate circles is probably IRR. I don't think I ever look at that or calculate it when I'm looking at a property. Do you guys ever look at that? That's IRR for anyone who doesn't know is internal rate of return. No. And this is the last time I'm ever going last. I never look at it. I'll uh, zig while you guys are zagging. So I, I like IRR in that so the value of IRR is it's accounting for hold time. It's accounting for um, exit price. So if I have a very specific investment thesis around hold time, IRR is going to give me that total return. It's including costs around financing. It's including the revenue earned when I sell the property. So it, I, I agree that cash on cash is a fantastic return. And my big rationale is I can compare the returns I'm getting with my real estate versus my other returns with stocks and bonds and whatnot with cash on cash. But IRR is really unique in that it accounts for the cost of money. It accounts for uh, my sale price and when I actually dispose of the property and that revenue. But, you know, looking into that sale price, that very much turns into kind of a crystal ball of, is this really real? Is this not? I'm just making projections far in advance. So good answer, Emil. <laughs> Go ahead, Michael. You're go ahead. How about yourself? So you've you've been buried, and all the good ones have been taken. So what metrics? <laughs> like you can't use cash on cash. There's there's nothing left to say. Uh, if I can't use cash on cash, I mean cap rates a great one, just because it's such a great equalizer and compare. You know, making an apples to apples comparison. So you know, for anyone who doesn't know, a cap rate is basically the anticipated projected projected performance for a property that's purchased all cash. So the equation that I always think about mathematically is purchase price equals NOI divided by cap rate. So if I know two, I can obviously solve for the third. And as I manipulate, you know, one or two of those variables, the third one changes as well. So like Emil, I'm a big fan of cash on cash return. But since that one was taken, you know, cap rate's a great one. And I know that if I'm going to put leverage on it, I can, uh, I can get an even better return with, uh, with using leverage than the cap rate. So that's a good point in that. I believe we all use leverage and love leverage and we don't have an episode record on leverage, but it's going to be like a love story with cap rate. 
leverage is not going to make a difference. The way that that calculation is calculated, leverage, it's going to be the same, the cap rate. So that's why cash on cash is so valuable in that it accounts for using leverage and all the benefits of goosing returns with leverage is a benefit of, of cash on cash because it accounts for that. How about, what do you guys see as flaws in looking at return metrics during the acquisition phase? This is a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that there's so many charges and fees and expenses that are associated with you know, purchasing real estate that there's this hot debate over what should be included and what shouldn't be included. And so I think that it, until there's a, a truly universal definition and everyone does the same thing, you could easily miscalculate and especially when comparing between two investments, you could easily miscalculate what your ROI is based on whether or not you include or exclude certain fees or charges. Um, I have a question for you guys. Do you include your closing costs as you're measuring out your cash on cash? I do, and I think everyone should. And the way that I typically do it is sort of peanut butter spread, like a one and a half percent cost. I believe that's within some of the roofstock assumptions when they estimate closing costs. But, you know, to be honest, the, depending on the region at which you're buying in, those numbers can shift a little bit. I wouldn't say like a whole lot on your, your closing costs, but in calculating your returns, that's money going out. So that for sure should be included in your cash on cash and, and your other costs. It's a uh, cost capital, cost spending. Yeah. One thing I think I, I used to do this in, it was probably me just being very new, is I actually included, you know, at the end of when you close a transaction, you see your closing documents, you see how much you paid out of pocket. And part of that is like your impounds, right? So part of it is you're paying early interest rates. Some of it is you're paying your insurance up front, taxes up front. And I used to include all of that after I close a transaction to calculate my cash on cash. But because I'm just prepaying some of those things, it's like double counting if you include that in addition to your insurance and tax assumptions. So now it's just when, when we're saying closing costs, and let me know if you guys agree, it's just like the fixed costs, origination fee, any points you pay, all that stuff to actually obtain the loan. Yeah, exactly. Because I think that the, just like you said it, Emil, those are all the insurance, the, the taxes, that's all money you would have paid anyways but you're just paying it up front. So you're not going to be paying it on a monthly basis. Totally. hundred percent. I got a, a question for both you guys down this line of thought. How often do you look at actual returns where the fiction is over and now you have real data? How often are you circling back and looking at your actual returns on your property? Yes. Every day. Cause I'm a psycho. No, I look, <laughs> <laughs> I look at it every couple months. I think just to, to give probably quarterly, I think, you know, realistically to, to see, okay, how am I doing based on my projections? What things could I be doing differently? Do I need to change course a little bit? Yeah. I think, you know, every couple of months and anytime there's a, you know, a massive expense, a big CapEx item or a big repair that came up unexpectedly, I see, okay, well, am I still within my projections? Am I still on track? If not, I need to adjust it and that'll obviously adjust my returns down. Yeah. What about you, Emil? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna nerd out a little bit on this one. So I I started doing this same as you, like probably every two to three months. And what I actually have, I have this spreadsheet where the first tab is a pro forma. So it's where I'm putting in all my assumptions when I'm going to analyze a property. So I I keep all those the same, right? When I decide to buy a property, I keep all that pro forma assumptions the same. 
And then I have separate tabs for each year that I've owned property. So I have like a 2017 tab, 2018, 2019, 2020. And then they all add up into like a lifetime performance tab. And so I don't know. I don't know if you guys do it the same way, but it's just taking the performance of each year, compiling it all together. I can see breakdown by year. You know, I have everything in there. So it's total rent, my mortgage payments, property tax, insurance, uh, property management. If I have an HOA on a property, repair and maintenance, all that stuff. So I just have everything really, really easily visible. And what's, what's nice about having a third-party property manager, which we talked about in a previous episode, most of them have like an online portal where they're keeping track of all your rent and all your repair and maintenance for you. So it's really easy to go grab those numbers for the year. You just log in and, and then I just put them in my spreadsheet. So I geek out on this all the time. It's super fun. Do you include appreciation when you're, when you're doing those like regular check-ins on your returns? I haven't, but I should. What I want to start adding here is what is my debt pay down been? So how much equity have I built from debt pay down and from appreciation? Cause yeah, right now I'm this, all these tabs is just purely cash flow. but I should be looking at it as a more total return with debt pay down and, and appreciation. Do you guys calculate that into yours? If I want to feel extra good about myself, I'll, <laughs> I'll do sort of a total return evaluation and put in the values are what they are from Zillow or some other source of figuring out the value. But I'll sometimes look at how much appreciation and add that onto whatever cash flow. And you know, if I want to feel good about myself, I'll do that. Even better returns, obviously, because you're counting the appreciation. How do you come up with the appreciation number, Emil? Because I think in a previous episode, we were chatting about how you're estimate was way different than your actual refinance number came out to be. So how, what do you use or what would you use to, to determine what the appreciated value is? Yeah. So now having gone through the process and seeing that just on, on a property that I refinanced, that Zillow was a little bit higher, I would probably, I don't know, I'd probably just give the Zillow number a, a little bit of a haircut. So maybe like a 5% discount or a 10% discount just to like be really conservative sure. about my potential appreciation. I think I what I'll typically do, so I have like a separate bank account that we advise people to have for just all my rental properties where funds are coming in, funds are going out. At any given time, I'll use that as a canary in the coal mine in that based on my assumptions for cash flow, this month it should be at this level, next month it should be at this level. So if, if there are any like major issues, right? The canary runs out of oxygen and falls off my shoulder. Uh, <laughs> I think you guys get that analogy. I have that as kind of a real time <laughs> guess of how things are going, but I'll get really nitty gritty twice a year where one an easy time to do it is come tax time where I'm actually putting together uh, all of the costs that have gone out, all the such as repairs, whatnot. And I'm getting that from my property manager and I'll sit down and I'll have like a completely accurate view of what is that real cash on cash. What is that real cap rate? That's something that I'll do twice a year. One of them come tax time, just because all those documents, I'm getting them anyways, might as well get a little extra juice out of that effort. But in kind of the day to day, pretty much any given time, I have that bank account that I can look at where I know what the balance is. And uh, what I do with that bank account is build out a fund flow. So each month I know if I'm hitting my assumptions, if I'm hitting my marks with regards to cash coming in and cash coming out, it's going to have this nice level uh stepping up and I can know if it's off. That's great. It's pretty advanced. You brought up taxes, Tom. So I want to take a stab at a question for you both. After your taxes are done, do you then do a, a reconciliation of what your ROI is, or your cash on cash and take into account depreciation as well? 
we're, we're smiling at each other because this is a good question. So I do not. For metrics like cap rate, I'll continue to use the assumptions of what my upfront costs are. Maybe I'm just not smart enough to like re-jigger all the calculations <laughs> based on depreciation. And I can just imagine the room that you do your work, Michael. It's like a, a beautiful mine where there's yarn and lipstick written <laughs> on things. And I keep it simple, K-I-S-S, yeah, with regards to the, the kind KISS of the principle. Ongoing, the KISS principle, yeah. Maybe at some point when I do some more coaching sessions with you, I'll update that methodology. I wasn't asking because I do. I mean, that's not entirely true. I semi do it. It's a straight line appreciation. <laughs> yeah. So it's very easy to figure out. So I only do it to anticipate what my tax liability is going to be, you know, as compared to the cash flow. I'm seeing, okay, is there enough depreciation from that building to essentially eat up all the cash flow and give myself a paper loss? I don't consider it as far as what the ROI is of the cash on cash. What about you, Emil? I don't either, mainly because I think it'd be hard for me to. One thing you mentioned is the expense. How much do you pay your CPA? And some of that is for my own personal stuff. Some of it's for my wife. So it's like, I don't know. It would probably, that's some advanced stuff that I haven't even thought about. So I I haven't done it. <laughs> that's my, the short, <laughs> simple answer. <laughs> Roofstock had a, uh, had a product out earlier when we had launched, which was an owner portal. And I think we're going to circle back and Roofstock as will ha- offer that to investors in the future. But in the earlier version, they had a cap rate and the cap rate was constantly changing the cost that you purchased the property to be what the current value is. So when I logged in and I saw my properties as a test user that I had purchased, the denominator and the cap rate should be what you paid for it. But the way that they calculated it was it's the current value of the home. So, you know, I bought this property feeling good. It was maybe like a seven and a half cap rate or an eight cap rate. And when I looked at it at my properties, they would show up as like a four cap rate or a five cap rate just because they had appreciated a lot. And I think this is a really good point in that the assumptions around these metrics that we're talking about, especially in acquisition, are incredibly subject to the values and the assumptions that people are using. I don't know, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on thinking about metrics when you're evaluating properties to buy and some of the flaws that can be seen in some of those metrics. Yeah, I see it pretty regularly in a lot of the coaching sessions. Students will bring up a property and think, wow, look at this, it's a seven cap and with leverage, it's performing a 9% cash on cash return. And then we'll go through and change some of the assumptions on the expense side. For instance, you know, using the after sale property tax value and adding in some additional property management expenses and maybe some additional CapEx expense items. And then all of a sudden that 9% cash on cash turns into a 6%. This only harps on the importance of doing really, really great property analysis on the front end, because you might be buying something unintentionally. You might be buying the wrong property. So as as you bake in those assumptions, I think you need to be super spot on or as spot on as you can be with those assumptions. And you, you obviously want to be overly conservative, but not so overly conservative that you're killing every deal. So it's definitely a balancing act of being conservative and underwriting well, but not being so overly conservative that you can't buy anything. What do you think, Emil? Yeah, I think that's a a great point. The only thing I would add is uh, on the flip side where you see a property, you see the current rent, let's say it's already leased up, you see the current rent 
and then you you take your assumptions, you see your cash on cash, cap rate. But what I'm starting to do now more and more is do a little bit, if it's a good property, if I think everything else looks good, is to see like maybe, maybe this is in a neighborhood where the rent is higher and maybe the tenant has just been here for three or four years and the previous landlord just never raised their rent. So maybe there's some opportunity here where someone else is just passing over it because they're looking at it at face value. And I think you, you and I have talked about this, Michael, on webinars is not just taking things at face value, sometimes diving in a little deeper to see, is there an opportunity here? Maybe the rent's 800, whereas everything else on the block is like 950. And so then your numbers change dramatically. And so I think with just investing more and more, you start to pick up on those things. You pick up that, oh, the, the tenant's been here for three years, okay? Has the landlord maybe never raised rent? Let me look into that. So I think it's just starting to pick up some of those things as, as opportunities and not just taking things at face value as well. Well, that starts to touch on the value add component of real estate investing. And I think a lot of people get scared or gun shy when they hear that term value add because they automatically assume that that's going to mean getting their hands dirty or taking on a project or doing you know physical things to the property. But just as you touched on, if you can just simply raise the rent, I mean, that's going to change the, the performance of that property significantly. And you don't have to lift a finger. You might have to get a new tenant. You might have to you know, sign a new lease with a tenant, but there's significant ways to add value that doesn't require capital expenditure or really even, even hard work for that matter. Sometimes it's super, super easy. I bought this, um, a multifamily building and all the rents were at 425 in a five unit. And we took it over and said, okay, these rents are significantly under market. We pushed everybody's rent up to 655. Two people left, three stayed. And immediately that added significant value to that building. So there are some really, really easy ways to add value. You just got to kind of know what rocks to look under to find Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Gosh, that's probably point. one of one of the best. Uh, as an owner of real estate, there's very few things more wonderful to returns than increases to rents in that your costs that you have are fixed typically, but you have mortgage costs and you know, repairs tend to be c consistent. Yes, there's some years where there will be more and there's some years there'll be vacancy. But, you know, that all averages out to be roughly pretty similar year to year. But when rents go up, it's, that's, that's in perpetuity. It's huge. I mean, something that I always try to articulate when chatting with students about cap rates specifically and how to think about them is if you take a property that's selling, being sold at a, at a five cap, every dollar you add to the NOI whether that's a dollar saved in expenses or a dollar more you can collect in rent, adds $20 to the value of that property. So as you start extrapolating that, I mean, this just, I mean, cap rates become huge, huge leverage multi force multipliers that if you can just add to the NOI, it just blows up the value so fast, so, so fast. So think about if you can add, you know, increase your rents and decrease your expenses you get to double dip on that value addition and you can see, you know, value start to skyrocket, which is obviously what we all want as owners. I've got one more concept related to returns for you guys. And this is one that I think is really interesting in that it's great to get it. But sometimes if you're too aggressive with it, you can basically get yourself so you can't buy anything. So the concept of discount to market. There's a, there's a lot of meat on this concept in that it's subjective of coming up with the valuation. And it also could, like I said, if you're, you're too, your, your assumption on what you can get is too great, 
you could basically limit yourself from buying anything. So Michael, what do you have to say about a discount to market? So for me, I'm a, a value add investor. So I'm only looking for properties that are, you know, I can purchase for under market value. That being said, I've paid full list price for properties in the past because I still saw potential for value add. So the, the discount to market is not really a, a metric that I concern myself with. And this is something that I talk with a lot of students about in the academy is a lot of them get hung up on, I'm only going to buy a property if I can get a 10% discount or a 15% discount or whatever amount they've determined worthy. But I always remind them that if the numbers make sense and the deal still makes sense, well, who cares what you have to pay for it? You know, just because you're not getting it 10% under market and, you know, if they're, they're hungry for cash flow and they're still getting a great deal, if they got to pay full retail, that's just sometimes the cost of doing business. So I think it really depends on, you know, what your ultimate goal is. And I always say, let the numbers do the talking, let the numbers dictate the deal. The numbers make sense. The numbers make sense. I don't really get concerned with, you know, market versus under market versus over market. I try not to pay for over market, but sometimes if it's a really great deal and there's some upside, you could even push the value a lot higher such so that when you're done with the property, you almost bought it under market because there's still so much meat left on the bones to, to, to add value there. What do you think, Tom? What's your opinion on the matter? Buying a property under value is, is always preferable. But talking, <laughs> yeah. about the, <laughs> talking about the theme of this podcast, the remote real estate investor, sometimes buying a property that needs a bunch of sweat equity and, and construction is tough to operate that efficiently as a remote investor. So as you were saying, buying full retail, if you have a long hold time and like a strategy on a market that you believe in, I'm fine buying a property at 98, 97% of what I think it's worth. Again, I don't want to buy it over what it's worth, but there could be times where if it's a deal that I, I like a lot and it's a market that I want exposure to, I'm okay with doing that. So yeah, being able to buy under market is great, but if I'm not going to spend the time to manage a construction team, to do the work as a remote investor, it's totally reasonable to buy a property without a huge discount to market. Now, obviously, as I said, there's a lot of benefits to buying under market in that that speeds up the process of if you wanted to refinance it, you're going to be able to do that a lot quicker, but you could basically build a box around yourself and not being able to buy anything. Another thought that I have that around this is there are times where I'm more active as a buyer in acquisitions. And in those times, I'll be a little bit less concerned on discount to market, which is the cost of the property divided by what I think the property is worth. There are times where I'm not as active as a buyer and maybe I'm not looking to buy. But if a deal comes up that is really juicy in the form of being a, a better discount to market, that's when I'll buy it if I'm in a cycle of where I'm not actively acquiring a bunch of properties. So I don't know. I think of it as ranges depending on where I am in my buying cycle. I think that's such a good point. I think that's a, an amazing point in that it's what's your risk tolerance, right? If you're looking for a turnkey home where you don't want to go in, spend a bunch of time rehabbing, fixing things, it's really hard to go in and expect to get a really solid discount to value, right? Somebody else has already taken that time, 
they've brought the home up to a good level. And it's, again, it's going to be really hard to find a discount to value there. But if you're willing to put in that time, energy, work with contractors to fix properties, right? It's maybe a little bit more distressed, need some help. Then that's when you're going to find a good, that's when you're looking for a discount to value. So I think it's, it's expectation up front, right? If you want something more turnkey, you have to be willing to accept that you're not usually going to find a ton of discount to value. But if you're willing to put in that work, yes, you should be on the lookout for that 100%. So that another important consideration of returns is assumptions, right? And they can wild differently. But I think it's important that as an investor, you have some like a litmus test, like a sanity chat test on different assumptions. And I think it's also important when you're looking at returns to set some, some guidelines as like a, a minimum amount. So Michael, why don't you start us off with what are some baseline assumptions you use in some of your returns that could fit into the expenses such as repairs and maintenance and vacancy? Yeah. So well, first off, I was taught never to assume. I think we all know why. But since we have to in the real estate arena, for vacancy, it depends on the neighborhood. But I think for the sake of discussion, assuming a decent neighborhood, I think 5% is pretty reasonable. And I think that's what the Roostock calculator auto fills in. For repairs and maintenance, I know that we did a lecture on this in the academy together. And I think we both agreed that between $75 to $100 a month for a standard run-of-the-mill single-family house was pretty reasonable, barring any major extremes. Are your assumptions different for single-family homes versus multifamily? Yes, they are. They are uh, for a couple different reasons. I think one of the biggest differences is in management, because as soon as you bring on management, multiple properties under management, you'll likely see a reduction in cost there. You can also likely expect to see a reduction in cost for repairs and maintenance labor cost, just because economies of scale, if you've got the same person mowing the lawn, they're mowing five lawns versus one, or they're taking care of multiple kitchen sink leaks as opposed to just one, you can often, often save there. I think where you see an increase in cost can often be when it comes to utilities. A lot of these multifamily properties that I own are older, and so they were built as single families and then converted to multifamilies after the fact. So they're all master metered, which means they share one electric meter, one water meter, one gas meter. So it's tough to subdivide those unless you're going to do what's called submetering or a tenant billback. But so as the tenants typically don't pay the utilities in a lot of these buildings that I'm purchasing. But to answer your question, yes, the assumptions definitely do change quite a bit from multifamily to single family. And how about uh, I derailed you and you're answering my original question when I was throwing another question at you. So back, back to some of the assumptions as well as minimum values. Yeah. So for, let's see, we covered maintenance, $75 to $100 a month, I think is totally reasonable for a run-of-the-mill single-family home that's not in a super, super harsh environment. That'll increase, I think, the, the harsher the environment you get into. And then for CapEx, again, this is kind of going to depend on the age of the, of the big systems in the house. So I'll look at mechanicals. So for single-family homes, that's going to be your HVAC and your water heater your exterior paint and your roof. Those are kind of the big four that I'll clump into CapEx type stuff. 
depending on the age of those, the condition of those, that's really going to drive what my CapEx reserve is going to be. And so that can be as low as $500 if all that stuff is relatively new, up to a couple thousand if I'm anticipating replacing any of those in the immediate future of the next couple of years. Emil, what are your thoughts on assumptions? Yeah, my baseline assumption, so I'm using 8% typically for property management. Like Michael, I'm using 5% for vacancy, just general vacancy. If you want, like Michael mentioned, you can change that based on certain neighborhoods you're in. If you have a better neighborhood, maybe you do it less. If you're in a worse neighborhood, you maybe you do more. My maintenance, I am doing $75 a month. And so Michael, when you said you do 75 to 100 for maintenance, are you doing maintenance and CapEx? Or are you separating out maintenance and CapEx? No, I separate those. I see those as two totally separate and distinct line items. For me, maintenance and repairs is, is something I anticipate on a regular monthly basis. CapEx I see as something that's going to occur once in a blue moon, hopefully, you know, knock on wood. Yes. Okay. So I'm the same. I do maintenance and CapEx separately. So I do $75 a month for maintenance. Major CapEx, this one kind of varies for me. I'll do as low as maybe $50 a month if the property is turnkey, the HVAC, the roof are newer, because I know I'm not going to have to change those anytime soon. If it's maybe a little bit older, I'll go up to around $100 a month for that. I think those are the major assumptions I'm using. Property insurance, property tax, you can get a better idea of those as well, just by going to like the county, figuring out what the percentage is for that county. And then you can always ask an insurance agent to give you a quote up front. I'm curious to hear what you guys look for. My cash on cash when I've purchased a turnkey property will usually be 7 to 9%. And then if I'm willing to, to do the work by something that needs a little bit of work, it's a little bit higher than that. I'll shoot for, I don't know, at least 12 to 15, maybe maybe more. Hey, Emil, I've got a question for you before we loop Tom in. For your CapEx, because I know that you've got properties kind of all over the country. Do you take into account the cost of labor or the cost of materials in various parts of the country? Or is it a flat universal CapEx reserve? Yeah, for me, it's just, it's flat. I just assume $100 a month for most of my properties. I actually have a reverse question for you. Do you set aside CapEx? <laughs> Do you have a account or something where you actually physically take out you know, your rent money and put it in a CapEx reserve? How do you guys handle that? No, I don't. I just kind of write it in to the account on my pro forma. And then I just look to see that at the end of the year, I physically have that money that I haven't spent it somewhere and I don't do a very good job of it. Truth be told, I end up Got spending it, it elsewhere. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I, it, it, it's tough to be in the middle of so many rehabs. It's really tough to put money aside and I know I should be better about it and, and need to be more strict about it. But with so many ongoing expenses, it's tough to just have, oh, there's a couple thousand dollars sitting there. Whoop, thank you very much. That's more sure. rehab budget. W yeah. What I do with those reserves is my property manager will keep a, a few hundred dollars in an impound account. And in the case in where there's a turn and those costs are a little bit more, most of the property managers I have will manage multiple properties. And so I won't add more money into the account. I'll just let the rent come in and, and pay for whatever difference that is. So when it comes to the month disbursement, I just will receive a little bit less money because it'll, it'll cover. So 
you know, I'm never taking funds out of my bank account. It's just in that impound account and that impound account will continue to fill up with rent coming in and that will cover any of those larger costs that do come up sometimes. Got it. Tom, what's your, what are your minimum numbers and assumptions? Minimum assumptions. So I like to hit double digits with cash on cash, continuing under the theme of diversifying stuff is get some properties in much nicer areas and be okay with a lower return. Generally speaking, there's something just kind of magic about that double digit cash on cash. Depending if it's in a super nice area, I'll go a little bit below that, but I don't know. So nice. double, double digits, like 75%, 85%. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> exactly, exactly. High double yes. digits. High Man, that's double awesome. Digits. High double digits. I try to hit triple digits, but you know, yeah, yeah. 10%, great, great round number. And what, what are your assumptions I think, you know, it's similar to you guys and I don't do it specific to the market. So with repairs and maintenance, a hundred bucks, just flat, uh, depending on who the property manager is. What's cool is you know that in advance on what the rates are for the property manager. So if it's in an area where I have a PM that goes as low as 6%, I want to see what the returns look like with that. If there, it's a PM that's as high as 10%, I'll just use the real data on what is available when I'm doing those assumptions. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of the Remote Real Estate Investor. We really appreciate you guys tuning in. Real quick thing before you guys head out, if you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that's Apple, Android, wherever, and leave us a review. We're doing a cool giveaway since the show is brand new and we're trying to spread the word as much as possible. So go ahead and leave us a review. Tell us what you think of the show. Take a screenshot and email that over to me. I'm at eshore, E-S-H-O-U-R at roofstock.com. And we'll hook you up with a free 15-minute RoofSock Academy coaching call with one of us. So you'll be able to talk to us about whatever questions you have. We'll answer any burning uh, things that we didn't maybe get to answer in an episode. So yeah, again, leave us a review. Email that over to me at eshore at roofstock.com and we'll get you hooked up. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. Happy investing. Happy investing. Happy investing. Happy investing.